to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 232 recorded March 17th, 2016. So we're back into DC Comics Volume 1 of Star Trek and we're covering issues 31 through 33. Mm-hmm. Well, these are basically the lead-up to uh, what will eventually happen in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Right. So a bit of a reset going on. Or something's going to be... Something's got to change big time. Because Spock's going to have to lose his memory and stuff, right? Well, right. And his command and all that other stuff. Exactly. How do they get from where they're at to where they need to be? Right. So he's been reborn already. He's right. a captain of his own ship. The, the uh, was it Sarak? Sarak, yeah. right? Right. And somehow he's going to get back to, <laughs> uh, you know, marble's not all there, Spock, like in the beginning of uh, four. Right. So interesting. Yep. But we're not quite there yet. We're, no. we're still a few yep. issues away from that actually right. happening. But you can kind of tell that they might be setting something up. Yeah. So uh, the first two issues, it's a two-parter, and uh, it's about uh, – it's pretty much takes place on a colony planet, so kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, most of it takes place there on a planet, so I thought it was kind of interesting. but uh, Right. Uh, and then the third issue we're covering today, issue number 33, was a monster-sized uh, – what is it? 25th anniversary episode or issue right? Uh, with the uh, – the original of the original series, so the 25th anniversary of the original series. Right, and it interestingly enough brings two versions of our heroes together in the same story. Oh, spoiler! <sighs> what? what the, uh-huh. They're actually going to continue listening. They're going to just hear it in, uh, like <laughs> in in 40 minutes. So, right. All right, well, do you want to go ahead and jump into this uh, this two-parter on Magellan's planet? Let's do it. So this is issue number 31 of DC Star Trek, Volume 1. The title is Maggie's World, published date October 1986. Creative team R. Plotter, Tony Isabella. Scripter, Len Wein. Is that well, Len Wen? I think it's Len. Uh, yeah, one of them. <laughs> okay. Artists Tom Sutton and Ricardo Vilgran. Letterer Augustin Moss. Colorist Michelle Wolfman. Editor Robert Greenberger. The cover features a frustrated looking Kirk with clenched fists who is being told by an older looking Starfleet officer that he has had his chance and now they are going to do things my way. They appear to be on the bridge of a starship with a Klingon bird of prey on the view screen. Screen. Text in the upper right-hand corner says, Klingons versus Federation. And the winner, Maggie's World. 
We are introduced to the likable rogue who appears to be the sheriff of a rough mining community. Though his feet hurt and he's coming down with a cold, he has a job to do, and that job is to break up a fight that's broken out in the local rec station slash saloon called Star Bar. He enters with a lit cigar in his mouth and a crashing bottle of whiskey against the doorway uncomfortably close to his head. The reader's view pulls back to show a full-blown brawl with at least 11 participants. Yes, this is Maggie's world, and it's on the razor's edge between civilization and complete anarchy. Maggie takes down several people when he is tackled by a one-eyed Klingon named Koval. Maggie dispatches the cad with a bottle across the jaw. They exchange words, and we come to find out that they are friends of a sort. The big, dark-haired hombre, named Maggie, pulls a phaser out of his belt and shoots a big, round chandelier as a lovely, white-haired woman in white hot pants tells him, Maggie, no! Too late! It comes crashing down in the middle of the saloon, which grabs everyone's attention and sends the combatants scattering out of the building. The lovely lady's name is Ina, and she appears to have a relationship with Maggie. However, at the moment, all she wants is Maggie's head for dropping the chandelier yet a third time. She settles down as Maggie and Koval, the Klingon, sit down for a drink, and Maggie reminds her of the damage the fight would have caused if it was left to continue. She calls him Magellan and says she still might kill him. Meanwhile, on the Excalibur, Kirk is recording a log entry concerning their rendezvous with the USS Sturgeon, just beyond the neutral zone. Kirk gives his best wishes to Commander Thimmon, who is a retiring Andorian officer that we met in a recent issue. Oddly enough, Thimmon is retiring outside of Chicago, where his daughter lives. He says eventually he will go hunting. So much better to be the hunter than the hunted as he was recently in a uh, previous issue with Bear Claw and others during an away mission. Thimmon says he has one regret, the fact he could not break through Bear Claw's bigotry and hatred. The young man has great potential. A shame. Speaking of Bear Claw, Kirk remembers he has a note from Bear Claw for the commander. It's the name and number of Bearclaw's grandfather, one of the few remaining great hunting guides left on Earth. Thimmon asks to take a few last long looks out into the nebula off the port side. It is a sight he will miss. Later, with Thimmon safely on board the Sturgis, Ambassador Stanton is beamed over from the Sturgis. Sulu's girlfriend, Maria Morelli, has been reassigned to be Ambassador Stanton's personal aide. Kirk welcomes the ambassador aboard, but the stuffy, no-nonsense diplomat does not shake Kirk's hand and says he wants to skip the pretense and be shown to his quarters. He has much to prepare for prior to their arrival at Magellan's world. He tells Kirk to get one thing straight. He is in charge of this project and not Kirk. Kirk is around to render assistance, and that's it. Kirk does not acknowledge the understanding the ambassador asked for, but rather asks Lieutenant Morelli to escort the ambassador to his quarters. 
As Stanton turns to go away, he says in a stern voice to Kirk that he trusts Kirk will not forget their little discussion. When he is gone, Kirk orders Sulu and Chekhov to bring him a full briefing on Magellan's world and on Ambassador Stanton within the hour. Later, Kirk is getting his briefing from Savik, Sulu, and Chekhov. Ten standard years ago, Magellan's world was simultaneously discovered by the Klingon Empire and a Federation explorer named Mace Magellan. He managed to beat the competing Klingon leader in hand-to-hand combat with one him the provisional governor's position that he has held ever since. It was decided that the Klingon contingent and the Federation colonists would have ten years to prove which side could best develop the planet. For various reasons, the Klingons have been mining more efficiently and growing crops more efficiently than the Federation settlers. It is highly likely that the Klingons will be awarded the dominion over the planet, so it is a lost cause. After Chekhov's briefing on Ambassador Stanton, they realize after an impressive early career, the ambassador has had a string of diplomatic failures due to his oversized ego. They figure they, they assigned Stanton to this situation because it's a no-win situation that even he could not make any worse. Kirk thinks to himself the Starfleet has not forgiven him, considering that they put him in the middle of this situation. Meanwhile, on Magellan's world, Maggie arrives at the Federation mining installation that is run by Elisa Toothven. After some banter involving sore feet, Alyssa says she has something important to show him, but away from the prying Klingon eyes. She points to an elevated location on a nearby hillside where two Klingons are watching. Inside her office, she shows him a bag of dilithium crystals that she dumps onto her desk. She says there is plenty more where this came from. Since both Klingon and Federation ships require them, this is a resource worth cheating and even killing over. She says two months after he gives the authorization to start heavy mining, she can turn the tide on who is producing the most resources. Maggie says, in that case, you don't have authorization. He is sick of seeing reckless mining ruin a planet like parts of Earth were ruined. Her arguments do not change Maggie's mind, and he leaves. She says ruefully that he might be in charge now. But that will all change when Ambassador Stanton arrives. Meanwhile, on the Excelsior, Stanton takes the personnel files from Lieutenant Morelli for Captain Kirk, Dr. McCoy, and Commanders Scott, Ohura, Sulu, and Chekhov. She asks why he wants them, and he explains he needs to know as much as he can to prevent these six rogues responsible for the Project Genesis fiasco from interfering with his mission. She attempts to talk sense to the ambassador, but he just makes the snide comment that their careers are over as far as Starfleet is concerned, and if she does not want her career to be dragged down likewise, she should keep her distance. She can't help but think how much she likes Sulu. Back on Maggie's world, Ina and Maggie discuss his aching feet and the Federation bureaucrat that the head of mining Alyssa has called in. He figures he will be out of a job soon and on to the next world to conquer. They state how much they like each other in a warm embrace. 
Meanwhile, high above them, the Excelsior enters orbit and is quickly joined by a Klingon D-7M class light cruiser. The ambassador is not happy to have the savage Klingons so close, but Kirk says there is nothing they can do about it. The Klingons have as much right to be there as they do. Captain Koloth turns out to be the ship's master, as Kirk and Koloth exchange uneasy pleasantries over a recently open channel. Stanton objects to how chummy Kirk and the Klingon captain seem to be and leaves the bridge. Kirk and Koloth are on similar missions and bemoan the annoying reality of bureaucrats. Meanwhile on the planet, the main drilling rig of the Federation mining operation explodes. To be continued. So does this story sound a little familiar? Um... Kinda. Remind me. What? What? Well... I, I, when I first started reading it, I kept thinking that this Maggie's World was a reference to something that I wasn't quite remembering from the original series, but now I know it's not. It's just something they came up with. But it does seem odd that this planet seems very similar to, what is it, Nimbus 3 or whatever, which had the Klingons and the Romulans and the humans all kind of living together. Oh, right. I mean, they weren't, they weren't doing a competition to get ownership of the planet but i was getting i was getting that vibe but uh, the whole yeah. idea of them competing against each other to get ownership of a planet that really sounds familiar and i couldn't ever quite figure out where i was getting that from do you happen yeah, to yeah I, I don't know but yeah. i also think it seems very unlikely given everything we've known about klingon and federation's uh interactions in the past right it's interesting. Uh, I I kind of like the story. Um, I kind of like the Maggie character. Um, uh, he's the governor, but he's also the sheriff. It's very odd. That's kind of odd, but right. Um, oh, I kind of like it. it's something different. But the planet is called Magellan, right? Well, I don't know whether that's slang or not. Okay. Uh, I mean, did they really name it after him? That seems well. That was what I was going to get. At. I was like, man, that's con- that's convenient. Ah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. And I never could quite figure out. So, so explain this to me. So there is natives on this planet. So it's already inhabited before the Federation and the Klingons show up. What, what? Where are the natives? I don't know. Isn't his girlfriend a native? And no, I don't. They, they think talk so. about it that there's other other inhabitants there, right? Uh, I don't remember that. Well, I I thought they did, and that's why I couldn't figure out why. Why they would be competing. I mean, I guess they're competing to prove to the inhabitants of the planet which would be the better empire to be a part of or something. Or at least that's what I was getting. I don't remember that part. Okay. Well, what I got is there are Federation folks there and there are Klingon folks there. Um, I don't know of there being an existing indigenous population, but maybe you're right. It would explain something because we're going to see – well, there actually we did see in this in this issue where they show like how the Klingons are more productive in growing food. Really, Klingons growing food better than the Federation? Odd, but right. you know the Klingon the the picture they show in the panel shows the Klingon kind of directing um, what appears to be humans who are actually doing all the work. So right. maybe if there were indigenous people, that would explain. 
why those people are taking orders from the um, Klingons. Right. And, and Maggie's – I assume that Maggie's girlfriend was also one of these humanoid-looking people that, that live on this planet. Yeah, but I thought they were just miners and, and people that came there after the uh, you know, after the colony was, was set up. Right. But, well, yeah. But who's calling it? I mean, it's a human and Klingon it's colony. It's a human and Klingon colony. It's a joint colony. Yeah. So. Yeah, just the whole setup seemed a little odd to me. Yeah, it is a little odd. It's unique. It's the first time I've heard of something. Well, hmm. It just sounded familiar, but I, I, it might be something else that I'm remembering. Yeah. Heck, it could have been this issue from back when I read it when I was a kid. I don't know. Could be. Could be. So. Anyway. Yeah, so this in, ambassador is wow. He's kind of a jerk. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny because on the cover he looks like Colonel Sanders, and <laughs> on the inside <laughs> in Starfleet uniform, he's yeah, he's a little bigger and uh, he's more out of shape. Quite so, Colonel Sanders like no, no. <laughs> now from the cover, it seemed like he was somebody that had real authority, right? But then as we're reading in the books, and as we'll find out as it goes on. Uh, well, we actually we probably found out enough in this issue. Um, the guy's kind of on the downward side of his career. Um, an right. ambassador who did great at one point, but you know, really was not doing well and is not thought very highly of, apparently. And that's part of his motivation and, and what he's doing and, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it, he didn't turn out to be what I thought he was. From the cover. Right. Um, and at the end of the story, no spoilers, he again surprises me when, by the time we get to the end. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I kind of liked his, the idea of this guy, you know, he trying to make a name for himself again, you know, right. and, and brokering this deal for the Federation would do it. Right. But I was still so confused as to why the Klingons would agree to this deal anyways. Exactly. Because they don't know about the dilithium. So really, what what are they gaining well, by controlling Well, do you know they don't? Do you know they don't know about it? Well, at this point, I'm... At this point, maybe I don't know. But I, right. I, I, I got a feeling they don't. Right. Uh, but they are very sneaky, though, right? I mean, they're watching... I mean, they seem to be out in front. They're They're mining more than the Federation folks. They're producing more food than the Federation folks, which amazes me. I, I don't understand that, although they try to explain it. Um, they seem to be, you know, in the front seat, yet they're spying, obviously, on uh, on the Federation half. And maybe that's just because they're, you know, they're that they just can't help themselves. They don't trust them, whatever. But right. um, it just seems like they're kind of doing things in very skulky ways. Like maybe they know more than they're admitting. And maybe part of the reason they want the planet is for the dilithium. But yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I was thinking anyway when yeah. I read the first issue. I wasn't getting that, but that would make sense. Yeah, but I could be wrong. I, I, I don't even remember them saying in the second issue, but I guess we'll maybe they did. So speaking of... Uh... A little out of character. Um, man, Kirk is mighty chummy with these Klingons. And, and, and I know that Star Trek VI came out way after this book, but every time he's all like joking around with the Klingons and, and having these little 
little side conversations. I'm like the the line where he just says, "I'll never forgive them for the death of my boy." Just keeps playing through my head. Oh, you know, right. Yeah. Which I know is a little unfair because that that movie came out so much later than this this issue. But right. I mean this this takes place shortly after Star Trek Three. His son did just die within the last year. Yep. And uh, I mean it would be hard to bounce back from that and just. Yeah, you would think that. So they're playing the card where Koloth, Captain Koloth and Kirk uh, have met each other in battle so many times that they're, um, you know, they're almost frenemies. Right. Which you are completely right. After what happened in Star Trek Three, I can't see that happening. Right. And I can't see Koloth being too happy with him because didn't he, isn't he the one that got all the tribbles on his ship? Wasn't that Koloth? Oh, is this Koloth? Is that Koloth? Hmm. Yeah. So he doesn't look anything like um Well he's Trelane. got a bumpy bumpy head upgrade. Wow. Well, not only that, I think Koloth is drawn. He looks like he looks like Konam to me. So, I mean the way he's drawn. Right. So it, you know, you know, not bonus points for uh <sighs> finding a way to draw unique uh, Klingons. Unique looking Klingon. <laughs> and he looks blonde. He looks like a blonde Klingon throughout the whole book. Oh boy. Yeah. Coloring. Yeah. A few little coloring issues here and there. Yeah, if you if you read this book and you hadn't seen Star Trek, I think you would think that uh Kirk was a ginger. Oh. His hair is <laughs> mighty red through my, a lot of this. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because of the burgundy burgundy jacket. That, that makes his hair look it's, more red, but... Yeah, it, it is pretty light. Right. It's like an orangey color, not brown. Yeah. I, I'm just going to mention the one part of the book that I really did not like. Okay. The bar fight scene. Oh! <laughs> I mean, w- when he goes through the, you know, the Old West type swinging doors, I mean, there's people flying up in the air and hitting the chandelier because they yep. got punched so hard. I mean, that's... Silly. It's silly. What's supposed to be? It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be a, you know, old barroom brawl. Exactly. Think Western. Yeah. But I mean, I I get, okay, one person up in in the chandelier, but (laughs) four flying Uh, up in the air at the same time. What is this? It's wacky. (laughs) <laughs> I kept waiting. I was like, so is gravity off? What's going on? Why are they just floating around? Yeah. It's a little over the top. Right. So, anyways, that that kind of threw me off. And since that was the second page, I was a little... Yeah. I was a little, uh, you know, off-center for, for the first half of the book, trying to figure out, uh, is this supposed to be a comedy? Is this supposed to be... A serious story? I don't know. Well, there there are elements that are are light, and right. definitely Maggie seems to be, uh, or they're trying to paint him as a lovable rogue kind of knucklehead, trying to uh, keep a keep a lid on things, but still very capable. Um, with a very strong Spanish accent, apparently, and strong enough to be Klingons. Because uh, yeah, physically strong, right? Exactly. And, and not only beat them, but he's picking them up and throwing them into the chandelier. 
So <laughs> he is a tough dude. He's a tough dude. Well, he, he was able to beat a Klingon hand-to-hand combat uh, originally when they had figured out, uh, you know, this sharing arrangement, and he becomes governor. So because he basically is able to, <laughs> to beat, I guess, the Klingon leader? I'm not quite sure. Um, but definitely a Klingon. And uh, it's interesting. I'm kind of wondering if that Klingon he beats ends up being his kind of sidekick Klingon. That the one-eyed guy? Yeah, the one-eyed guy, Koval. Maybe. So, uh, you know, they don't say that, but I'm thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe. He beats him and he ends up, uh, you know, becoming friends, whatever. Right. Frenemies. Frenemies, exactly. Um, although the, the, the name Koval seemed very familiar to me. Did you and, look it up? Well, I did. Because the first thing I thought was Starfleet Academy. Wasn't he like the girlfriend or the boyfriend of, of oh, that yeah, one yeah. girl I was thinking maybe? But it's like, yeah. Eh, Dorian's so. girl, boyfriend? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's that's I what I thought. That's what I thought, but I did a search. That didn't come up, but... Um, in Deep Space Nine season seven, enter uh, episode season uh, seven. Enter. Oh yeah, that's the last season. Yeah, you're right. All right, go ahead. Um, there was an episode that was uh, Inter Arma Enim Silent Leges. It's a very interesting title. Anyway, so the guy, uh, yeah, so he's a member of the Tau Shiar, and actually he's a Romulan, hmm. which is interesting. And he apparently uh, popped up a few more times. Um, in some comics. Oh, okay. Uh, but he was a character in Deep Space Nine. Chairman of the Tal Shiar. It's a very Klingon-sounding name. That's what I thought. But uh, apparently they can be swapped, I suppose. Hmm. Well, they can they can borrow each other's ships. They can borrow each other's names. Exactly. There you go. So, a little research. Hmm. All right. Um... One thing I really liked about the book what? was the uh, retirement of the Andorian. Simon? Simon? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little couple of pages. That was a nice couple of pages. And the thing I wondered about it is they made such a big deal about this. I mean, they had Simon, who you never saw before. Uh, he popped up an issue or two ago in that big adventure with Bearclaw, the trouble with Bearclaw. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then you see him here, and they make a big deal about him going away, uh, retiring. And then also that big thing uh, about um, him hunting and, and you know maybe right. ending up getting together with Bear Claw's uh, uncle or whatever, grandfather, right. uncle, something. So I, I have a feeling he's going to pop up again, and, and somehow they're going to have Bear Claw in the in the mix, um, where hopefully Bear Claw will learn his lesson. But uh, well, he seems like he's not as bad as he he. He acted. I mean, he did give the oh, name Claw. and stuff. Yeah, Bearclaw. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I agree. It seems kind of odd that he just showed up randomly in that one issue. And then here he is. I'm leaving for the final time. And I'm like, I've only seen you one other time, dude. <laughs> I'm not going to shed any tears over your loss. Exactly. Exactly. No offense. That's right. Blue skin. <laughs> I was thrown off a bit by Lieutenant Morelli's hair on page 18. Or it's kind of sticking up. It's kind of spiky, like right. extremely. Um, so I was like, where's the wind machine? And <laughs> or something about Mary. 
Uh, uh, like about, oh, the movie? Yeah. Oh, did she have her hair sticking up in, in that? Yeah, Cameron Diaz did at one point. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's pretty cute. Um, anyway, so it's just – her hair was really spiky in some panels, you know. Right. Um, and then other panels that, you know, earlier in the, in the, in the issue, when you first see her, it's a little spiky too. And then right. there's some other panels where it's not spiky at all. Uh, so it's like her hair's going everywhere. I just thought that was odd. Yep. Behaving, not behaving, behaving, whatever. So Maggie and that, uh, barkeep or that bar owner, Ina, quite the, uh, yeah, I wasn't quite sure it was couple. the same person. But it definitely is the same person, right? Oh, yeah. The lady? Yeah. With the hot pants and everything? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. So, there are, hot, there are a couple. Definitely. And that's really all I have to say about this one. All right. Cool. All right. Well, next up is issue number 32. This came out in November of 1986. Uh, all the writing and art staff is the same, with the exception that uh, Lin Wen is the only writer. So there's there's no plotter this time. All right, so this one is entitled Judgment Day. And the cover shows someone looking down the scope of a uh, rifle. And in the crosshairs, we see Maggie, Kirk, and Koloff. So the story picks up where the last one ended uh, after the explosion at the mining facility. Kirk and many of the Excelsior crew have beamed down to the planet to tend to the wounded from the explosion. Mace Magellan, a.k.a. Maggie, is also there as well as Koloth and other Klingons. Ambassador Stanton makes no secret that he knows who's behind this, and it's the Klingons. No one else is convinced since the Klingons were clearly winning the competition with the Federation to help the planet with their mining and agricultural needs. Savick asks to speak with Kirk alone, and she tells him that she found evidence of a bomb, proving that this was no accident. Elsewhere, Stanton meets the blonde woman named Alyssa. She tells him that their plan is working, yet he is very upset about the injuries at the explosion. She tells him to calm down and that he should have known that he can't expect to make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. She strokes his ego enough that he sees this as his big career comeback move, so he continues to go along with it. Meanwhile on the Excelsior, Ahura picks up an odd communication but cannot make anything of it. Scotty asks her to continue to work on it. Back on the planet, McCoy and Kirk go to a Klingon bar to meet Koloth. To the Klingon's surprise, Kirk tells him that they do not blame the Klingons for the attack. Maggie then shows up and tells everyone that he knows who did it, because he would not be a very good governor if he did not know what was happening on his own planet. Later, Maggie meets with Alyssa and tells her that he has evidence that she was behind the attack, and he tells her that he's going to let everybody know in the morning. That evening, Alyssa visits the Klingon bar and roofies the one-eyed Klingon, Koval. While the drugs are working on him, she leads the man out with the pretense that they're going to get to know each other much, much better. He passes out shortly after they get outside, and she drags his body away. Later in the night, Maggie is on patrol when he is shot in the chest by a blaster from a nearby roof. 
Alyssa has killed her friend and is now going to drop Koval's body from the roof to make it look like the Klingon fell right after he killed Maggie. Suddenly, she and Koval are beamed to a nearby location and find themselves surrounded by Kirk, Stanton, Koloth, and the rest of the humans and Klingons. They tell her that they know it was her. She then tells them that it was also Stanton's idea. He turns on her. He does take ownership for his part in the whole ordeal, but he also tells everyone that she's behind all the killings. Just then, Maggie appears and tells her that he was wearing a phaser-proof jacket. Never leave home without it. Alyssa then grabs a disruptor and tries to kill Kirk, but Stanton jumps in the way and takes the blast. Kirk quickly stuns the woman, but Stanton dies, asking for forgiveness. The next day, the Klingons have taken ownership of the planet, but they have agreed to stop the strip mining and also share the dilithium crystals with the Federation. Maggie agrees to stay on as the local governor. The Excelsior crew return to the ship and learn that Ahura has decoded the strange messages, and they're coming from a ship called the USS Enterprise. To be continued. Well... Before we get out of that, mm-hmm. so the story is wrapped up nicely. We yep. end up we end up having Klingons and Federation citizens working together on this planet. Could be it could it be a model for the future? Right. Maybe this is Nimbus Three. Huh? This is the beginning. This is where it started. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Of course, we don't like where it ends up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Nimbus 3 didn't look like the a very nice place to live. No. And those uh, those representatives from the uh, <laughs> from the different uh, civilizations, they didn't look too happy about what they were doing. And of course, this was all from uh, Star Trek V, right? Right, Star Trek V. Right. The best of the original series movies. <laughs> oh, the irony. You know, for all its faults, it's not a horrible movie. Um, n- there are some parts that are good, but there are some parts that are horrible. <laughs> oh, my God. It did like have when... Worf's granddad. That was kind of cool. Though that was cool. I mean, it's really amazing how many different Star Trek things Michael Doran has shown up in. But um, I, I, especially when Spock saved Kirk, when he was falling off the face of Mount Capitan, I'm sorry, that was about the most horrible thing I ever saw. It gets worse when they're in the turbo shaft and they keep going past the same, like, three or four floors. Yeah. That's pretty bad. I mean, you should at least renumber them if you're going to reuse the same footage over and over and over again. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, right, right. Um, anyway, so um, so that Alyssa, she turned out to be quite a pain in the butt, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, no, she was crazy. Willing to kill. Willing to kill. Well, not only willing to kill, but downright did it. doing it. She I mean, did it. Right. 
So in the but, first issue, she was just kind of like, hey, Maggie, we have these dilithium crystals. You, we don't want to lose these, right? Mm-hmm. So she goes from that, which she didn't seem all that sinister to suddenly she's like, I've already killed all these people and I'm going to kill more. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm this cute little girl with, you know, basically Pig blonde tails. pigtails and overalls. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I look like the farmer's daughter. Right. Yeah. I guess looks can be deceiving. I guess so. Uh, so deceiving. That's a good thing. You're wearing your bullet. your Phaser-proof vest. Oh my goodness, that was horrible. Okay, so I've never seen a phaser-proof vest before, and uh, I've seen phasers cut through steel doors or whatever metal they use in the future and disintegrate people. Exactly. So despite what they're wearing. <laughs> exactly. So now, mind you, there's also apparently uh, ape-like creatures on some planets that are amazingly <laughs> able to also. <laughs> Not be cut to pieces or disintegrated by phasers, whatever. But luckily, this 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 magic vest exists, which I've never heard. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, that that was. So what's funny is that my my memory gets a little messed up at times because I read these comic books when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and so a lot of times when I think back of the movies, I get for whatever reason I get storylines mixed up. So for the longest time, I was convinced that uh, Chekhov um, has a scene in Star Trek VI with a phaser-proof vest, and he's he shoots he? it, and and the phaser-proof vest is just fine, but the mannequin that it was on is completely disintegrated, and just the vest falls to the floor or whatever. In my mind, I remember that scene with the actor, but it's from a comic book that we'll get to, you know, several several issues from now. Oh. But but there for the longest time, I, I swore that was in Star Trek Six, and I was telling somebody about it, and they're like, "That's that's not in the movie." Uh, and then yeah, I rewatched it, yeah. and I'm like, "Oh no, that's not." <laughs> yeah, so so we will see phaser proof vests in the future in in future issues. Huh. Okay. But cool. uh, they don't work like this. <laughs> they work <laughs> like how you would expect them to. Not well. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so handy, handy. Uh, definitely was not expecting the ambassador to do a 180. Um, right. Into more or less a selfless hero, kinda. Was it really selfless though? I mean, he his goose was cooked. I mean, I know, but I mean, he he went got he took the bullet for Kirk, right? Right. So I don't know. That's pretty selfless to me. Yeah, but he was also probably like, uh, I don't. I'm going to spend my life in prison. I might as well. Well, I don't okay. know. And then if you watch it, it kind of looks like maybe it just went off. Like he's just trying to wrestle it from her and it goes off. I wasn't quite sure if uh, if he really jumped in front of the beam itself or mm-hmm. if it just went off while he was fighting with her. Right. So I don't know. Well, I thought your synopsis said he did. Yeah, well, in my synopsis, that's the way I wrote it. But I was when I was writing it, I was kind of like going either way on on what actually was happening in those pages. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Either odds way, are, odds he, are, if he had more time, he probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Either way, he was fighting with her. Yeah. Um, he was trying to stop her. He obviously felt bad for what she was doing and what he was a part of. And partially responsible, right? But Kirk was quick to forgive him, and then writing him up for accommodations or. 
or uh, what? What is it? he gets some sort of right accommodation, some yeah, kind of thing like that. Yeah, and you know, and that ultimately, I think, what Starfleet thought of him was very important to him. So he died, but at least he got something he really wanted—an honorable exit. Right, but too bad he was part of that destruction of the mining facility that that took the lives of a couple people well, plus injured well, a bunch but of others. It wasn't like he was in the know on that. I don't think. He could have turned her in right right when he found out. Yeah, yeah. He could have. Yeah, and then I mean, did he So I was kind of confused. So did Maggie go out there on patrol knowing that she was probably going to try to take a pot shot out. Oh, yeah. It was all a trap. Right. So if so, then... Well, that's why they were ready to beam uh, her and the uh, Klingon to where all the townspeople were. So did Stanton know that uh, that he wasn't going to be dead? Um, Stanton. Oh, Maggie? What? No. Did the, the ambassador, did he know that... Uh... That Maggie wasn't going to be dead. I don't because know. I thought he, I thought he kind of seemed surprised too. So I mean, if it was all part of well, their plan, then why would he be surprised? Because he would have been in on the plan. I, I would have, yeah. I thought he would have been. I mean, basically, there was a whole gathering of people sitting there, you know, waiting right. for the transportation of uh, Alyssa or whatever, um, and and Koval. Mm-hmm. Everybody there must have been out in on what was going on and the trap because they were Except witnesses him. to it. Well, right. But that, Stanton, that, when, when, that, when Maggie shows that up, odd. yeah, when Stan, when Maggie shows up, Stanton's like, no, like he's like surprised that he's still alive, which then I was like, well, then did they know that he was in on it and they planned this trap and didn't let him know all the pieces? Yeah. It just seemed odd. Yeah. I, that that I, I part's was, odd. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's odd to me too. Cause but I, I kind of liked their plan. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, the plan to draw her out. Oh, I liked her plan, too. I mean, the, the way she ah. roofied the Klingon and stuff. Ah. Like <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, she's quite devious. Quite devious, I must say. And strong. She was able to carry that Klingon... Uh-huh. Up the well, ladder. Look at her. She's a farmer's her. daughter. Yeah. She's kind of cute, but uh, you know, she can roll up her sleeves and I think maybe the gravity is different on this planet and that's why people can be thrown up into the chandelier. Oh, that might be it. That could Little women it. can carry big, big Klingons. Early Klingons. Big heavy overweight old Klingons. Yeah, up up a ladder. Right. Upstairs is one thing. But up a ladder, that is so much harder. <laughs> uh, good thing it's a comic book. Oh, yeah. I gotta remember that sometimes. Yeah. Eh, eh, eh. So, I really don't like Lieutenant Morelli. I mean, what's her deal? You mean uh, Sulu's girlfriend? Yes. That's yeah, exactly what I mean. She seems odd. She seems odd. She seems... Extremely focused on her career. Right. But And then everybody else seems to be giving Sulu a hard time, like like she's going to pass him up or whatever. 
It also seemed that also seemed a little sexist. I know that they said that they were just testing him, but it also seemed a little sexist. We're like, Ooh, who's going to wear the bars in your family? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then when he calls them on it, they're like, oh, we were just 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 kidding. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We were just kidding. Right. Yeah. yeah we were kidding. Right. Yeah. 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 We we're kidding. Yeah. That's it. Maybe not. <laughs> And then Chekhov's like, we were? What? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, uh, so I like the Maggie character. He's one tough hombre. Hey. Yes, but I can't get past the phaser booth vest. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny looking at it. It almost looks a little bit like, um, like kind of like that plate of metal that Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood wore. Exactly. <laughs> Under the poncho. Right, it has like a like a like a like an Iron Man circle type thing yeah. in the middle of what's it. What's that about? Well that's what I was trying to figure out. I was like, all right, so does it create some sort of field that draws the phaser beam to it? And that's why it'll always hit the the plate and not your head or whatever, but <laughs> I think I'm just trying to I'm trying to rationalize it too much. Yeah, I think so. I think what they were trying to say is that round spot is like the indentation made by the phaser. Which is funny because it's light. Anyway, yeah, right. whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, too bad. Uh, I mean, too bad Maggie couldn't give old Stanton one of those. <laughs> exactly. Hey, you know, Ombre, you might need one of these two tonight. Just be careful. Right. Ah, <laughs> uh, poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so. There you go. Uh, uh, happy ending. Well, the reason why I say I don't think that the Klingons knew about the dilithium is that they agreed to share, uh, sell. I think the exact wordings were that they were going to sell half of the dilithium to the Federation at a very reasonable price. Uh huh. Um, I don't think. I mean, I don't think they would have done that if they knew all along that the uh, the dilithium was there. Well, I don't think they would have done it. Period. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I mean, they're Klingons. I mean, come on. I mean, th- th- this is like the nicest Klingons I think I think we've ever seen, and I just I'm not buying it. <laughs> but whatever. Right. Good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. So that's all I'd say about this one. What point? What more points do you have, my friend? I don't think I do have any. Okay, there you go. Hopefully we'll see Maggie's world again sometime in the future. Yes, maybe. Maybe. Don't hold your breath. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, even though a very famous author wrote it. Um, shall yeah. we get on to the 25th anniversary or 20 year, 20 year anniversary 20th special? 20th anniversary, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, let's 20 do year it. Anniversary. Should we do that? Because it's a big one. It's a it big was a little one. longer than normal. And again, this is... Uh, Len Wen. Right. Right in this one. This so one, Len Wen is the, uh, you know, famous for writing many of those gold key comics that we love so much. Oh, yeah. I, I remember a little bit about that. But what, wasn't he also the guy that did Swamp Thing and things? Or Yeah, right. Swamp Thing. Yeah. So that's what he's a little bit more successful at. Because I wouldn't quite call his run at gold key successful. Well, for us Star Trek fans, I would. Oh, yes. Okay, fine. Uh, 
Those gold keys are, uh, they hold a, a special spot. <laughs> yes, let's not get into that again. All right. Okay. So how about if I do the next one? And it's a little long, so I'll do my best to make it expeditious, but it is kind of long. Sounds good. The title is Vicious Circle, and it is issue number 33, and it is a uh, 20th anniversary special. Yay. December 1986, published date. Writer Len Wen, artists Tom Sutton and Ricardo Vilgren, letterer Augustin Moss, colorist Michelle Wolfman, editor Robert Greenberger, with Beth, Beth Meekum for suggesting the idea. Thanks, Beth. The cover features Taw's era Kirk, Spock, Uhura, McCoy, and the Enterprise. In the lower right-hand corner, Kirk and Spock's faces are shown with the Excelsior. Text tells us it's the 20th anniversary issue. The original Enterprise and her crew are attempting to return to their own time from the 1960s, where they mistakenly found themselves after an encounter with a black star. Using the slingshot maneuver around the sun, they have entered a time warp and are moving forward in time. Their attempts to stop moving through time at the correct year are compromised by engine damage that occurred during the slingshot maneuver. They overshoot and find themselves decades past their target. Meanwhile, the Excelsior, with a marginally older Captain Kirk at the con, is closing in on the Enterprise's position. The crew does not believe the comm chatter they are hearing. Ahura is actually hearing a younger version of herself coming in over the obsolete subspace frequencies. When they arrive at the source of the transmission, the Excelsior comes into contact with the Enterprise from over 20 years ago. The Taws era crew looks at the much larger and stranger Excelsior. It has Federation markings, but is unlike any ship they have seen before. Over the view screen comes the image of a man who calls himself Admiral James T. Kirk of the USS Excelsior. He's older and appears to be paying more for his haircuts these days, but indeed it is an older and higher ranked version of Captain Kirk. McCoy suggests it is some kind of elaborate hoax, which Kirk asked to what end, Doctor. Spock corrects them both and explains they overshot their targets by some 20 years. Welcome to the future, gentlemen. The Excelsior crew comes to the conclusion that indeed these people are them, but 20 years ago. Savik makes it clear this is not a mirror universe situation. They speak over the channel and conclude it was the Enterprise's trip back from 1960s that overshot their target and brought the Enterprise to the future. But Admiral Kirk and McCoy recall returning to the correct time without incident. Taw's Captain Kirk and his senior staff go to the Excelsior on Admiral Kirk's invitation. Captain Kirk brings over Spock, McCoy, Scotty, and four or so others to the advanced ship and begin an odd getting-to-know-you session with people they could not know more intimately. Odd. Savik introduces herself to Spock, but does not tell him that he died and was resurrected, merely that he is captain of the Serac, a science vessel. As the crews from across space and time begin to acclimate to their most unusual situation, the Excelsior is rocked by forces external to the ship. 
Both bridge crews move quickly to the bridge, where Captain Kirk meets Ahura, Sulu, and an officer he has never met before, Chekhov. Savik and Spock report on what rocked the ship. It's a space-time anomaly caused by the presence of the Enterprise in this time period. The time-displaced crew interacting with their modern-day counterparts defies all logic. Savik gives it a more precise label, a chronal warp. Spock says the universe is in upheaval, trying to right the imbalance. Admiral Kirk asks for an assessment. Spock says if the Enterprise is not returned to her correct moment in time, the universe will soon shake itself apart. Admiral Kirk asks what can be done to correct the situation. Savik quickly replies, get the Enterprise and crew back to their correct time. Duh. Spock says he needs to take some readings and perform analysis immediately. He must return to his instruments on the original Enterprise. Admiral Kirk, with likely an an ulterior motive, says, why don't they all go? They do so, and of course, the Enterprise crew freaks out over a bit older versions of themselves coming aboard. Admiral Kirk gets a kick out of seeing young Yeoman Rand. (whistles) Old Dr. McCoy gets a kick out of seeing young and unusually cute, very well drawn, Nurse Chapel. Young Sulu is virtually speechless after seeing his older version. Kirk mourns and kicks himself, destroying the Enterprise now that he is standing on her. Again. McCoy talks him out of his self-recriminations. The chronal riff continues to worsen, as both crews race to work out a solution. Spock says the instability caused by the chronal waves will make any attempt to slingshot around the sun to time travel very unpredictable. The most obvious solution is also a very dangerous solution. Not sure what the correct next step is, a third ship comes on the scene. It is the Surak. Old Spock has arrived on the scene after monitoring the situation from afar. After some additional work with the greatest gathering of Starfleet brain power ever assembled, Old Spock tells them they must return to the Guardian of Forever. Its ability to travel in time will provide them the gateway to the past that they require. Spock explains how they can use a cold restart of the Enterprise's engines, as they had done once in the past, while they fly at the Guardian's planet. In theory, a portal to the past should open and return them to the correct time. It will be as if this period of both the crews coexisting had never happened. If the portal does not open as planned, the Enterprise and all aboard will be utterly destroyed when it plows into the planet at warp speed. They don't like the sound of that, but Captain Kirk states they have no other choice. They must try. The three ships and crew arrive at the star system of the Guardian's planet, in time to see one of the system's planet torn totally apart by the waves of time-space distortion that totally envelop it. Old Spock transports down alone and asks the Guardian to replay the events of the last 20 years. Spock takes readings with his tricorder as the Guardian complies. The data is uploaded to the Enterprise. Old Spock returns to Surak. Young Spock returns to the Enterprise. The Kirk and Spocks bid farewell and good luck. 
the Surak and Excelsior depart the planet for safety as the Enterprise undertakes its most dangerous and important maneuver. The Enterprise cold starts her engines and begins her run. The temporal effect begins, and their chronometers begin to move backward. At the correct point, they begin engine braking, and after a very rough ride, the Enterprise arrives in the correct time period with no memory of their layover in the future. Meanwhile, the Excelsior's crew finds themselves taken back in time to the point when the Enterprise entered their time period. They have no memory of their encounter with their younger selves. They receive a call for help from the Serac. They speed to the source of the signal and hope they can make it in time. The end. So I liked how the last page was the exact same last page from the previous story. Exactly. Kirk giving yep. the accommodation to Stanton, you know, just like out of nowhere. I, th- I thought that was actually pretty good. Yeah. So it really underscored the idea that, hey, I've seen this before. Oh, okay. <laughs> so even the people that didn't go on a kamikaze run for the Guardian of Reverence planet, even they got affected and put back in time a bit. Right. Very handy. Right. But uh, it was also kind of cool the way we read it, right? We read all three of these books in the same week. Um, so, you know, I just finished the last one when I got to this one. So I, I knew the exact same page that it was talking about, but if you were only reading these once every month, I mean, w- would that have been that noticeable that, that that page was exactly the same one oh. with the exception of, uh, it was the Surak versus the, um, original enterprise. I, I don't know um, because he not- just out of nowhere, he's talking about Stanton and stuff. I mean, and, and right. that's not mentioned here at all. It was just it was just cool. I, I keep rambling, but I thought that was actually a cool thing. But <laughs> I think it was extra cool because we had just read that last book, so we knew right. exactly what they were getting at. Exactly. Right. Yep. Not bad. So what do you think about um, – well, really, when it comes right down to it, the whole issue was really just an excuse for the old and young – versions of the crew to interact with each other. And that really was it. Right. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It was good. Uh, but Yeah. At first, what I thought they were going to have to do is stay in the shadows and not let the old Enterprise ever see themselves, right? So they, you know, the Excelsior could help the Enterprise get back, but they could not know who was helping them and things like that. Because right. otherwise, why did I, you, you know, can't I was, know about the future? Blah yeah, blah why, blah. They can't know about the future, and then Kirk doesn't remember these events happening. So I was like, right. okay, so they're gonna have to do it in secret. But then once they all started having the reunions and stuff like that, I was like, okay, well they're gonna have to erase a little bit of time. Right. But I was not thinking Guardian of Forever. That was actually kind of a cool little way yeah. of doing it. I it thought. makes sense. Yeah. Matter of fact, every time they get into a jam, they just need to go to the Guardian forever and say, Guardian, can you play the last two days? We need to redo right. something. <laughs> we need a little redo. Exactly. Yeah. Why didn't they do that after Khan? Uh-huh. Go over there. <laughs> bring Spock back to life that way. Exactly. Yeah, just, just bring us back a little bit earlier when we didn't raise our shields right away so we could have killed him right away. <laughs> right. You know? Or just not go to the dang planet. 
Can we just uh, go back go. about three days and then tell Chekhov not to go down to the planet? <laughs> Thank you. Right. Thanks. Exactly. Yeah, my wife and I were actually, and the kids were debating that that type of uh, storytelling where you can just go back in time. So we were all we were making fun that Flash and Superman have all gone back in time to fix a mistake or something. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And then you're just like, why don't they just do that every time? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, he saved Lois in the movie to right. fly around the planet again. And yeah, no, right. Can't do it every time. That's a crutch. It is. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering how the slingshot maneuver worked. So if you go one it's way BS. around it. Does it take you to the past and the other oh, way around it takes BS. you to the future? It's such BS. <laughs> so, uh, so back in the seventies or eighties, I guess when this, when this, uh, when those movies came out and they did the, oh, well, actually in the sixties, that's where they came yeah, up. Slingshot the issues. Right? Yeah. I so mean, really, all that, all that is is a is a kind of common uh, maneuver for 20th century spacecraft to do so they can get a gravity boost and uh, go faster. Voyager did it. I mean, a a lot of spacecrafts do that kind of thing and they don't go into time warps. Mm -hmm. But of course that's a, that's a slingshot around um, planets or even moons where this is a slingshot around the sun. So I guess you can get more speed up. Well, but and you're still. going at warp speed already. Exactly. So, I mean, I exactly. So what's the big deal? You hit warp 10 where you're at all places at all time. At the uh-huh. And then you just pick which spot you want to stop. <laughs> That's how I read it. Okay. Well. <laughs> it's an excuse. It was just a, a little gimmick. So. Right. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Christopher Pike's uh, ship have time warp capabilities when what i think when they went to warp no no in the in the the show in the pilot then they they went to time warp that was that was their unit of measurement of speed yeah If, if unless i'm unless i'm misremembering no no you might not you might not be i don't remember that but that's that's an interesting deal the detail they might have thrown the word time in there Right. Time warp sure. eight. Exactly. Eight. And so yeah. if they could do time warps back in Pike's time, well then doing a slingshot around the sun they go back in time should be no no brainer. No brainer, man. Kirk. Yeah. Well they don't so. Do you remember when that uh menagerie episode came out? Not menagerie, uh cage. When they like found the footage and they did a big TV special to air it for the first time and all that stuff. Do you remember when that happened? No, not at all. Oh, it was, uh, it was was found. It was found footage. Nobody had. Yeah. And they had to, they had, well, they found it in like different sources and they had to kind of like piece it together. And some of it was still in black and white and then some of it was in color. You don't remember that? Uh, no, I don't remember that on TV at all. The only time I remember it, the only time I remember it is, you know, from the special features on the Blu-ray sets. Okay. That's what I remember it from. 
No, I remember when, because it was right when I was first getting into Star Trek um, that they found it and they did a big TV special with Leonard Nimoy hosting. And I was all excited about it because, you know, it was going to be this, all this, this new episode. And then it mm-hmm. ended up just being menagerie with a, with a few extra little bits, but, right. but n- nothing all that great. So anyways, I thought, well, well since you were a little older, you might have gotten caught up in the, uh, no, I don't remember that at all. Okay, but on the special features that had it, they it was uh, it was Roddenberry that was doing the intros to it. Oh, uh, was it? Maybe, he, but but maybe, maybe that wasn't the same thing as a TV show. I don't know. Yeah, maybe a TV special. But anyways, we're kind of off topic. Um, a bit, but it, yeah. Okay, so back to this book. Mm-hmm. Was Young Kurt? Jealous of old Kurt eyeballing Rand? Oh, you think so? It, it seemed like it. <laughs> like, like old Kurt was like, hey, it's nice to see you again, Rand. And then gives her the eye. And then, yeah, and then there's Kurt's like, oh, we got to go to the bridge. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And so, so the ship gets jostled. Um, and if, if you got the comic book, you know this, but, um, and lovely young, firm Rand ends up uh, falling into old Kirk, and he's like, oh, how do I ever let this go by? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Regrets? Just, I, I thought I thought young Kirk was uh, a little jealous there. Yeah, could have been. Could have been. Hold on there, Pops. I thought Christine Chapel was drawn v- very attractively. Mm-hmm. She looks much younger and hotter than Mae L. Barrett ever did. God Aww. rest her soul. Oh, Majel, Majel Barrett's a handsome woman, but uh, Nurse Chapel was drawn really cute in this one. Um, and I, I again, um, I think uh, Yeoman Rand was drawn mighty, mighty attractively too. So that was cool. Um, and then what about Ahura when Young Kirk was kind of putting the moves on? On uh, older Ahura saying that she, how well she aged and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, eventually I'm going to kiss you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what it seemed like. It was like, was this supposed to happen right after that? But no, because that was in season three. Yeah, so, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I don't know where that was coming from. I don't know either. But I, you know, I was quite frankly. I was just getting a little tired of all the characters interacting with each other. Right. I mean, some of them were interesting. Some were good. Some were interesting. It just kept doing it. Right. And of course, that was the main point of the whole thing. Let's see how they interact with each other. It's like, okay, fine. It just just kept doing it. Anyway. No, I agreed. Yeah. But the the one that I thought was kind of sad was uh, Ahura meeting her younger self. Mm-hmm. And then the younger one's like, you know, it's 20 years later, we're still on this stupid ship. Yeah. You know, that kind yeah. Of thing. We, we still then, don't have a baby? Right. Oh, that, okay. that was sad. We're not, that was we're not married. Sad. We, don't, we don't have kids. Right, and, right, right. You know, obviously, a young Ahura, that was, that was important to her. And uh, she never did it. So I, that was, to me, really, really sad. That was kind of sad. But then, you know, my first impression was, oh, that's sad. And then my next pre- impression was, eh, it's a little sexist. But 
you know, in reality, I mean, I think a lot of ladies have strong, you know, uh, maternal instincts. Um, and I think a lot of them feel that way. But it's, it is a little like, oh, you know, that's what Ohura is going to be really focused on because she is a woman and, you know, women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, I, I right. got a little bit, of, I, a little back of my head said, eh, it's a little sexist. But still, uh, I, I, it, it, seemed, it seemed genuine. It seemed to work well. Right. And then I liked, you know, I liked what older Ohura said about as far as that, you know, you know. Instead of her legacy, instead of having children, was you know making you know making the the universe open for mankind and and sure. womankind or whatever. So sure, sure. I, I liked her line, but I yeah. just thought you know justification. And, and think about it: if you met your twenty your yourself twenty years ago, mm-hmm. your, your life goals would have been quite probably different. Oh yeah, oh today. completely, completely. So I could see myself twenty years ago, twenty years. In the past, saying, "You're doing what? You're doing what on a podcast? What? <laughs> <laughs> You're spending your time doing what? <laughs> yeah, I've grown that. I spent a lot. Of, you know, <laughs> uh, you're still doing that, huh? Okay. <laughs> anyway, so uh, did you notice the uh, word balloon mistake on page twenty-one? Uh, um, let me get there. But is it where Chekhov was talking through? Uh, McCoy? No, maybe that's another one. No, this is the one where this is the one where uh, young Sulu and and old Sulu uh, are stepping on each other's lines. Oh right, right. Yeah, it's like they're they're yeah. finishing each other's sentences. Exactly. Yeah, I wasn't right. sure if that was intentional or a mistake. I think that was a mistake. Yeah, I thought so too, but I wasn't one hundred percent so. Then there was another one where I swear it was McCoy and he was using all the V's instead of W's and things like that. Oh, oh, like like he's got a Russian accent? Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I can try to find it. I, I didn't write it down because I was like, hey, it's not. Yeah, not that word. Yeah, right. I, I didn't notice that one. And it could have been, you know, it could have always been Chekhov and I was just uh, – you know, he just looked a little more wrinkled than they normally do. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching, um, just yesterday, I was watching uh, Star Trek IV. Hmm. And, of course, Walter Koning, Chekhov was there, and he was in his little, um, God, what, what a, his civilian outfit was right. horrible. I mean, he was like, it kind of looked like, like Blue Boy or something, you know? <laughs> I mean, the outfit made him look like he was an idiot. I can just, uh, but, but the thing is, you, you, he was still back then, he was a very young face. Uh, cause I mean, but by then he would have been in his thirties, right? Um, I anyway, he, he, he still looked very youthful in his face by the time right. he came along. Yeah, so that's why uh, I was a little thrown off when he had wrinkles. Yeah, yeah. I did like the line between the two McCoys when when the younger McCoy was like, well, you know, again, what are you still doing here? Right. You know? <laughs> right. I, I I really like. I I know that it got a little old, but 
the interactions with everybody I thought was actually pretty good. It, it was good. It's just, yeah, it was good. But one of the things that kind of ticked me off was nobody knowing who Chekhov was. Oh. None of the young knowing who Chekhov was when we've already had the annual, uh, you know, DC annual uh-huh. that showed that Chekhov was on that ship. I think that was volume one. He was, he I don't was know, maybe, in... it was a vo- maybe it was a volume two one. But anyways, we, we read it a, 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 an annual at some point that uh, right. that Chekhov established that he was there at yeah. the beginning. What, like, like I'm in, pretty sure it was in engineering series, so... or something? Yeah, right. You know, just, just off camera a little bit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he got no lines at the beginning, but he was still learning. <laughs> But anyways, but I guess this this issue maybe it came out before that that annual did, but uh, maybe. but here definitely nobody knows who he is. Yeah. Well, and yeah. we know that Kirk knows every single person on that ship, whether they're cleaning the toilets or on the bridge, he knows them by name. Exactly. All five hundred and eighty. Which would be incredible. That yeah. was how that could happen. Yeah, he's Kirk. He's Kirk. He's Kirk. What do you want? He's, he can do anything. Yeah. So um, one thing I that annoyed me just a little bit is um both admiral kirk and admiral kirk kept on ordering to raise the deflector shields raise the deflector shields they and, don't have deflector shields well they've got a deflector dish which shoots a a beam in front of the ship when it's going at warp to make sure there's nothing in its way mm-hmm. um but the shields Ah, that's. I thought that was different technology, um, right? And I and I don't think you normally call them deflector shields, defensive shields. Bring up the shields, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, I just struck me odd that they kept on calling it deflector shields. Don't they call them screens at some point? Yeah, I, I think that's another term they use at times. But I think shields is the most common one. And I'm really not used to it being called deflector shields, but maybe that's just me. So it was good. It was interesting. Right. So on page five, Chekhov says it is roughly equal to the size of our own ship. So he's talking. He, he this is old old Chekhov on the Excelsior saying that. The, the ship they're picking up that's broadcasting as the Enterprise is about the equal size of their own ship. But yeah, but was the he Enterprise talking about... is quite a bit smaller than the yeah. uh, Excelsior. Was he talking about their, quote, own ship, you know, from back in the day, the, the Enterprise? Were they talking about the Enterprise? Because that's the only thing that makes sense. I agree with you. The Excelsior is majorly bigger than the Enterprise. Right, and then later in the same issue, they just keep showing how much bigger the Excelsior is. So. Sure. So maybe when he was saying our ship, you know, they already he meant the yeah. original one. Because then they why already... wouldn't it be exactly the same size? Why? Why say roughly? Well, maybe they're far enough out. Their sensors aren't precise enough. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The magic sensors. Oh, maybe because they haven't taken off those little uh, what you call nipples. So. That's rough. You know, that makes it a little roughly different. Oh, that would be a difference. In On the nacelles, you know, the little points. Exactly. Yes, the nipples. Sometimes there. The, the red nipples, yes. <laughs> well, look at it. Come on. I thought that – I, I really think that's funny. 
on the Pike Enterprise. Right. And I didn't even realize it was there until you pointed it out to me, but whatever. That's funny. All right, my last comment is I love the artwork as far as making the actors look young and old, young and old, young and old. Thought they right. did a good job there. Right. My only complaint is that they do this big two-page spread of the Excelsior and the old Enterprise, and they look – they have no detail, and they're just completely flat – Pie, pie plates kind of thing. No, <laughs> no detail on the saucer sections or the nacelles yeah. or anything. Yeah. yeah. So and even the cover. Fun. Yeah. Even the cover, the Enterprise looks pretty weird. Right. Yeah. That, and and that's, I mean, that's probably where it's supposed to be. Cover. Yeah, I know. But yeah. look, I mean, it looks yeah, like right. Jupiter <laughs> too. I mean, the saucer section really looks like the Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. And, and bulbous. Bulbous. Um, yeah, it's not very flat at all. Eh, minor point. But anyways, if you're going to do a two-page spread, I would want a little bit more detail in the. In yeah, the agreed. Art. Yeah. I mean, if it's just a tiny panel on the bottom of a page, okay, I can I can understand why you couldn't put a lot of detail in that, but two pages, come on. Well, at least the Enterprise looked okay on the opening page. It did. It looked really good on that opening page. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. There are a lot of other panels where they didn't really spend a lot of time on it. So, anyways, that's actually my last comment. You have anything else? My last one is just that um, I'm amazed at how well Spock took his own death, his own future death. Yeah, he took it quite well. He took it very well. Yeah. And if you found out you go out as a hero yeah. and you get to come back, you yeah, you had to come back. What the hell? Too much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Why would you care? <laughs> I'd be like, I died? But you come back to life. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, you mean kind of like Jesus? Jesus? Okay. Yeah, okay. That's good. <laughs> exactly. That's handy. Okay, that's my last thing to say. All right, I do have one last thing, and it's completely one-off, but... All right, so uh, next week we'll be back with uh, – we're going to continue this DC comic run and do issues 34 through 36. Okay, and so this will be the tee-up for Star Trek Four. If I'm not mistaken, yes, it'll be the tee-up to Star Trek Four because it's a, it's a three-parter, and we find out why Spock was uh, calling for help there at the end of this issue. Right, and hanging out in his uh, bathrobe. A lot. He was in his bathrobe? A lot. His terry cloth bathrobe, yes. Oh, 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 in Star Trek Four. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I started to go back through this issue and I was like, man, I missed that panel. <laughs> yes, no, no. yes. Yes, he goes from being captain of a vessel to running around in a bathrobe. Exactly. So and something's definitely a mess. And not understanding uh, human slang. Exactly. <laughs> Well, neither was Kirk, so there you go. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Later, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comic book review at gmail.com. Visit us 
at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com, subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.